welcome to Screaming Through the Ages, your bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. I'm your host, Trey Whetstone. Before we get into things, I wanted to clarify a couple of items from the last official episode. First of all, I wanted to get into my rating system. I said I wasn't going to rate by numbers or give anything scores, and that stands true. But I do want to establish a hierarchy and what kind of rating system you can expect going forward when we do talk about these films. Starting at the top, and we'll go with what we would give something like Cat People from last time, that would stand in the must-watch, must-see, a classic category. Moving a step down, I would say something would be highly recommended. When I say highly recommended, I think it's anything that horror movie fans would enjoy and should see. Now, a must-watch is something absolutely necessary. Like I said, a classic, something that every fan has to see at least once. Highly recommend. I think it's just a really good, solid movie that you should watch, and I don't have any reservations recommending it to anyone. Moving down on the list, I would say the next is the one-time watch. Now, for a one-time watch, I think it's an okay film. It's a good film. It's good to watch one time and then move on, and you don't really have to get anything out of it. It's just an enjoyable night of watching a film. And anything else than that, I would just give an avoid. I probably won't be giving this a whole lot on the films we're covering or subjects. Maybe I will when we get into certain things down the road. But for now, I wanted to lay out that hierarchy, and those are the four radians I will be giving each movie that we cover on the podcast. Secondly, I mentioned something last time on the Cat People episode about RKO bringing in this horror unit, this small horror unit, to compete with Universal, which I made out to be a bigger studio. The thing is, is I was talking strictly on the horror movie aspects of them. If we're talking about studio size, RKO was one of the big five studios, the five majors in Hollywood at that time. You know, they owned their own theater chains. They were a huge distributor of movies. When we look at Universal, it was classified as one of the little three or the three littles. That just meant these were the three. When we're talking about the three littles, the main thing to know is they didn't own their own movie theater change. They didn't have any distribution pipelines like the other big five studios had. We're talking about Columbia, we're talking about Universal, and we're talking about United Artists. So in the grand scheme of things, RKO is much bigger than Universal. It's just from a standpoint in horror and what has come for it, the legacy and everything, Universal had a much bigger footprint on the horror industry at the time than RKO did. Now that we've got those couple of things out of the way, let's get on with the show proper. Tonight we're going to be talking about the next step in Val Luton's career. The first episode we covered his early life in the movie industry and how he broke in and released the smash success Cat People. Well, now we're going to be moving on to the next two films that Val Luton and his team put out. I Walked with a Zombie from 1943 and The Leopard Man from 1943. We're not going to have as much background and history going into this episode just because there's not as much out there about those two films as there was about Cat People and there was about Val Luton's early career and how he got started. So not as much history going into this one, but we do want to talk about the next step in his career, and what films he was putting out. Let's start things off and set the tone. Cat People was a huge success, and RKO was dying to have another hit like this. They were dying to have films like this that they could put out for these small budgets and did really well. A lot of pressure was being put on Val Luton and the team at the time. I would say it was an immense amount of pressure, and we'd see later where that would get to Val Luton. There was only a month between the wrapping of I Walked with a Zombie and the shooting of the Leopard Man. 
and then only another month between that and the shooting of the seventh victim. I want to lay out what went on between December of 1942 when Cat People came out and December of 1943 when the ghost ship was released. In that period of a little over a year, Val Luton had put out Cat People on December of 1942. I Walked with a Zombie in April of 1943. The Leopard Man in May of 1943. The Seventh Victim in August of 1943. And then The Ghost Ship in December of 1943. That's five movies released in the span of a little over a year. And then Curse the Cat People came out in March of 1944. So you can see where there's not much time in between these movies. There's a little four-month gap in between Cat People and I Walked With a Zombie, but then you put out The Leopard Man not even a month after I Walked With a Zombie came out. And then you have The Seventh Victim releasing in August, which is a few months there, and then you have a few more months, and you're releasing The Ghost Ship. Not really a time for a break there. They get a month in between wrapping, filming, and moving on to shoot the next one. We see with Cat People, there was a little bit of time there. Val Luton came in in 1940, and they had a lot of time to concept and put together this film and released it in December 1942. Now, they're not necessarily taking a film, wrapping, and putting it out in theaters. You know, we had that I Walked With a Zombie and Leopard Man reportedly. Now, I couldn't find a good release date for The Leopard Man. May 8th is what I'm seeing. That is a little close to when I Walked With a Zombie came out, but I believe it still came out sometime in the spring of that year. Maybe it premiered on May 8th. But still, that's a crushing deadline that this studio is putting on him, this crushing workload of getting a movie completed from start to finish in a couple of months. Now, that may not have affected the quality of the first film that came out this evening. As we move on later in the discussion, we might see the deadline start to impact what's coming out of the studio. So that's a little setting of the tone of what's going on at that time in RKO, just rushing to get these movies out left and right. Let's go ahead and jump into the first film this evening, and that is I Walked with a Zombie from 1943. Now, starting out, the title was taken from an article written for American Weekly Magazine by Inez Wallace. This article that was written covered Wallace's experience meeting zombies at her time on a plantation in Haiti. Now, when we say zombies, what Inez Wallace meant by this are people who took drugs to the point that their cognitive abilities and vocal cords had been impaired, and this left them obedient servants who understood and only followed simple orders. So basically you can see where the modern zombie would come from that kind of a term. Now I don't know when the drugs are mentioned here if, if this was like a forceful thing to create this kind of obedience, or if this is something that they were introduced to and doing on their own. I don't know, I don't have the background on that, but that is the main emphasis of this magazine article. I'm guessing the higher-ups at RKO saw this article, saw the title, and thought, this is a cool title for our next movie. Either way, that was the title that Val Luton got, and that's what he had to make a concept out of. A little cool note before we move on, the film actually was first shown in Cleveland, Ohio, which was Inez Wallace's hometown. So that's kind of cool that they take and base this film and title off of the article that was written by Wallace, and it premiered in her hometown. Now, we're changing up a little bit on this. They brought in Kurt Siodmak and Ardell Ray to come in and write a screenplay for this film. Luton instructed them to use Charlotte Bronte's novel Jane Eyre as a model for the narrative structure, and they were also told to do a lot of research into Haitian voodoo practices. Luton's goal here was to make a West Indies version of Jane Eyre, which is pretty cool. Uh, Siodmak went about writing the original script, 
but Ray and Luton ended up making extensive revisions to the script, as we've talked about already. Luton liked to get his hands in on everything, and liked to dig in and put his own personal touch on the script. And that goes back to the days when he was a script doctor. Here we start to see what's going with the quick shooting schedule. Principal photography began on October 26th of 1942, and they ended up wrapping on November 19th. Less than a month to wrap up this picture. We laid out the writers. Let's talk about the director. Uh, Jacques Turner again returns to direct this movie. He also directed Cat People from our previous episode. We've got the whole team still together and putting out these movies. Runtime came in in about an hour and nine minutes. Now that seems pretty short, as were all of Val Luton's movies. The only thing I could gather here is they had a very limited budget and they had a very limited schedule as far as the time they were allowed to make these movies. So I'm thinking that had a lot to do with you can only put out as much content as you can get done in that time. They're just very short, breezy watches, and it doesn't diminish the quality. I feel like these films do fly by, they're over before you know it, but I never feel like it's less of a film. Before we get into a synopsis or anything, let's get one thing out of the way. When we're talking about zombie here, we're talking more about what Wallace's article was talking about, and not the modern day zombie. So when we're talking zombie, we're talking about someone who was raised from the dead by magical means. And this doesn't necessarily have to do with voodoo. From what I understand, making a zombie out of someone is not the practice in the voodoo religion or the voodoo belief system. But nonetheless, instead of the modern day zombies we have, which are usually raised through some kind of disease or some event like that that's based in science these are things that are based in witchcraft they were brought back from the dead they are a lifeless being they are essentially dead but they were raised by witchcraft and move with a purpose of some sort i walked with the zombie was not the first film to delve into the haitian or the west african concept of a zombie that would be white zombie from 1932 i believe that's the first to popularize that in the Western culture. Having set that out, let's go ahead and get into the synopsis from Letterboxd for this film, and get ready, because this is a doozy. See this strange, strange story of a woman whose lore set brother against brother, whose love caused hate, and whose beauty bowed to the will of an evil spell, in whose power we must refuse to believe, even if it's true. A nurse in the Caribbean turns to voodoo in hopes of curing her patient, an unusual woman whose husband she's fallen in love with. That seems like a lot of marketing going on there, but essentially the second half of that synopsis is what's going on, despite the sensationalization of the first piece. Now in Cat People, we talked about the sexual repression being a theme throughout the film, and the background and the leopard in that film being an analogy for that. Well, I Walked With a Zombie is no different. There are undertones talking about slavery all throughout this film. Really, they're using the term zombie and the way a zombie is used in this film as a metaphor for slavery. You know, not being able to move freely or having a will of your own, just going on living with someone else controlling you. And I think that's really the driving force behind this film, even if it's not front and center. What we see front and center is this love story going on, but all the while these undertones are there. We get this scene early on in the film when our main character, Betsy, is coming to the island, and this is set in the Caribbean on an island. 
Betsy is basically going down there to be a nurse to this woman who has no cognitive abilities left. She's just kind of wandering on aimlessly through life. She's hired to come down and watch after this man's wife and be a nurse to her. It kind of devolves into a love story from there. But we get this scene where Betsy is coming to the island, and there's a carriage driver taking her to the estate or the villa or whatever it is. You can tell this carriage driver's trying to be polite, saying, you know, whatever you say, ma'am, whatever you say, miss, whatever it is that you say in there. And you can tell he's just thinking, like, she's talking about all of this, how beautiful this place is, and oh, this and that. And he's telling her about the local heritage and how they came to the island and she's saying oh well you came to this beautiful island and whatever you say miss basically what he's saying he wants to tell her to f off but he can't it's just there from the very beginning this great character by the way this carriage driver it's another one of those supporting characters who are just great within Val Wooten movies an interesting thing I noticed from the beginning is I think Val was trying to turn this crazy title that he has for this film back around in the studio because there's this voiceover at the very beginning before anything else happens and we just get Betsy's character doing this voiceover and she says I walked with a zombie right there now I could see that one of two ways it's either Val Luton poking fun or kind of punching up at the higher-ups at RKO saying hey you gave me this stupid title I want to just come right out and address it or the worst case scenario where it was someone at RKO saying hey we need to get this line into this movie because this is just too good to hold back hope it's not the latter there but we'll never know there are a few areas I want to talk about with I Walked With Zombie the first being the setting of this film once again Val Luton and the whole team here I don't know who exactly is responsible for set design but the set design is beautiful and these shots are beautiful all of these scenes we get are just amazing we get this villa in a Caribbean island at night, we just see the shadows in different corners. We see the wind blowing through and these plants just swaying back and forth. And later there's some scenes where they're walking through these crops at night and the wind's blowing through it and you get all these ambient sounds. And you get this eerie music going up and building up to something. And it just really sets the tone and really makes you feel like you're part of this world. It really immerses you. There's a pretty cool scene when Betsy is moving up. I believe she heard a sound and is going up this staircase, and there's shadows everywhere. And then we see Mrs. Holland, who is the wife of Mr. Holland, essentially Betsy's employer. And she's just in the shadows and kind of just emerges from these shadows at Betsy. And it creates this really cool scene. We get a lot of, they're sitting out on, in a garden is what they call it, in this villa. And we just hear the drums in the distance from the voodoo camp. And we get this several times where we just hear these drums or we hear this chanting in the background while these characters are trying to talk and do this scene. And it's just amazing how they set it up. And you just really feel like you're there. I can't emphasize that enough. What a great job they did with putting you in a place in this movie. That scene with Mrs. Holland is really, we're going to go back here to our use of the Luton bus or the bus as they termed it back then. That scene with Mrs. Holland is something again where we get the Luton bus effect. We've got Betsy going up the stairs and she's in the shadow and Mrs. Holland emerges from the shadows and seemingly is possessed and it gives us that little scare without being anything really dangerous. And we'll get that again too. The scene where I was talking about where Mrs. Holland and Betsy are moving through the crops and they're going out and this is probably the most famous scene from the movie or at least one of the most memorable and they're going going along these crops. They've got these 
voodoo patches so they're able to be noticed when they're going down to this area. This tall, thin man named Carrefour is just standing there, and he's clearly blind or something. He cannot see, and they just bump into him and just kind of stay there for a minute, and that is another scare where Carrefour just wanders off into the night. You can tell Carrefour seemingly has the same affliction that Mrs. Holland is suffering from, but the way it's shot, it just kind of startles you when they run into him. We've got another love triangle kind of situation. I wouldn't really call it a love triangle. Basically what they're setting up here, and this is the driving force, and this is probably where we're getting this Jane Eyre background or narrative setting, is you've got Paul Holland, and he is married to Mrs. Holland, obviously. Jessica Holland, to be exact. Paul's brother Wesley is in love with Jessica, but she's married to Paul. And obviously they're thinking about running away together and getting out of there. And this is a point we'll get later in the film where Mrs. Rand, and my dad first, uh, Mrs. Rand is Paul and Wesley's mother, and Wesley is Paul's half-brother. They're not, you know, same mother and father, but... And it turns out, and spoilers again on this podcast, we will go into spoilers for all of this, but when Mrs. Rand finds out about Wesley getting ready to run away with Jessica, she goes down and talks to the people down at the home fort, is what they call it, which is where the voodoo practitioners go down there to do all their rituals and their worshiping and all of that kind of stuff. And she talks and says she wants Jessica to be turned into a zombie. And soon after that, it seems that Jessica is turned into a zombie. So that's where we're at in this triangle. Or not really a triangle, but you've got Paul married to Jessica... Jessica is now a zombie. Wesley still loves Jessica. And then now we enter Betsy, who is an outsider, and during her time falls in love with Paul there. But again, another romance driving the plot of these films, and I think it's made to flesh out everything else that's going on. People could relate to that. It's not just a horror movie where we're going in and people are dying and there's these horrific things. There's also this love enveloping it all as well. And the most impressive thing, other than the setting about I Walked With a Zombie, is the voodoo stuff. And we don't get to see this in a whole lot of horror movies. I think it doesn't come very often. It's very few and far between. And I love the topic, personally. But voodoo plays a huge role in this film. We've got Alma, who is a servant, seemingly, at the villa and works for Paul here. And takes care of Jessica and helps take care of Betsy as well. And Alma is the first kind of driving force in it. We've heard about the voodoo from other people in this film, and we've heard about their practices. But Alma is the first step to get Betsy to take Jessica down to the home fort. And she just knows that they could heal her there, and they could help her there. So she's all gung-ho about this. They've tried a procedure earlier, a medical procedure to try to heal Jessica, and it just doesn't work. Now later that night, Betsy does sneak out with... Jessica, this is where we get that aforementioned scene where they run into Carrefour. And again, they have to wear these voodoo patches to go down there. And they go down there, and you can tell they're just fish out of water. And maybe they're seeing how it feels to be in a place where they're not the majority, and they're not in a comfort zone. They're just lingering there and witnessing these ceremonies that are going on, which are really intense, by the way. It's not hard to imagine that Val Luton really drove into them to study and really brush up on the voodoo culture because it just seems so natural and so believable. I saw a quote earlier that it was believed that 
the voodoo religion was handled with more care and accuracy in this film than any other previous zombie films and probably any more zombie films to come. So that's a really cool thing. But when they're down here at the home fort, when Betsy's got Jessica there, she gets called into this little shack. It's where the people go up one by one and they turn their ear up to it and I think they talk through it. It's someone supposedly giving them advice while she gets in there and finds Mrs. Rand, who is a doctor, and again, Paul and Wesley's mother. She is the one that's giving the advice to all of the voodoo practitioners. So she's trying to do what she couldn't do down at the, her doctor's office. She couldn't get these people to believe her, but she tells them to do these medical sound things, this good medical advice, and they believe it because they think it's coming from one of their spiritual healers or something like that. But while Betsy is in there talking to Mrs. Rand, you've got Jessica, who is this essential zombie out there all alone. The people start to gather around her, and they're poking and prodding at her, and they cut her, and there's no blood, and they immediately think, oh, she's a zombie. We gotta do something about this. So that really starts it off. So that really kicks off this next section of action with the voodoo-type stuff. They make a doll of Jessica. They want to bring her back to the home fort to finish this ritual that they need to do. I don't know if it's to put a zombie to rest or what it's to do. They don't really elaborate or get to that point. They're dead set on getting Jessica back down to the home fort. And what we get next is just really cool. We've got Carrefour, who again is this really tall, thin man who is seemingly he's blind and seemingly doesn't have a whole lot of cognitive ability either. Is he a zombie? We don't know. We never find out. But we just see him with this voodoo doll and he's holding it. And it's a very creepy image. And then we get his shadow creeping in Jessica's room and we see the shadow going through the garden and we just see the shadow. And Carrefour is revealed and Mrs. Rand ultimately says stop and sends him home. But it's clear that he's there to take Jessica back down there. Now with this last part where we get the last piece of this voodoo is they've got the doll, one of their leaders down there. I don't know the proper name for them, what they used in the film, but they're pulling this voodoo doll on a rope. And we see Jessica start walking towards the gate to the villa and it's shut so she can't leave. Well, you've got Wesley there who is in love with Jessica and really has talked to Betsy about euthanizing Jessica and just putting her out of her misery because he loves her so much. He's out there and sees this, and the first time she's stopped at the gate, they send her back in. Well, Wesley is out there alone the second time, and he opens the gate. And he just lets her on the gate and out of her way, and he goes back and maybe he has something going on too, or maybe this is just his urge to euthanize her and put her out of her misery but there's this figurehead we learn about this with the carriage driver early on this is another symbol that we could see for the slavery in the film it's this figurehead of a man who's been pierced by all of these arrows so wesley goes over and he grabs one and kills jessica before we get to this we see down at the home fort they've got the doll they stab the doll and as soon as they stab the doll we see wesley stab her with an arrow and then carries her off into the water at this beach. And then we see Carrefour again stalking after them. Carrefour seems to be almost controlling Wesley as he walks backwards into this water, and he's got the stabbed Jessica in his arms, and they just go under and walks back and walks back until they both drown. In that moment, we're left to see this. Well, is Carrefour controlling this whole thing? Is the voodoo behind all of this thing? Is voodoo really driving all of this, or is it just a metaphor? 
I'm sure RKO made it pretty clear that they wanted it to be Voodoo driving this, so we get a much more overt story than we probably would have gotten otherwise. But it does lead to this beautiful scene with these men with torches dragging the bodies out of the water and carrying them back through the villa. And that last thing we see is a close-up of the figurehead, really driving home one last time the point of racism and slavery in the very last image of the film. That's about all I want to say on I Walked With a Zombie. I'll get in a little more later once we've talked to the Leopard Man and go over what the films have in common and some trends that we've seen with Luton's films thus far. To sum things up, where I would come in on I Walked With a Zombie from the scale that I set out earlier would be a highly recommend. This is still a very solid film. Jacques Turner and Val Luton are still at their best here. It's not quite to the level of Cat People, and I don't think they would ever get to the level of Cat People again, which is weird because it was their debut, whether it's to do with timelines or whatever else. But I Walked With a Zombie is so atmospheric, and it's so cool to have this, this pretty true to reality voodoo that we see in the film. So I would recommend without hesitation anyone watch I Walked With a Zombie let's go ahead and get into the leopard man now we don't know a lot about the leopard man i could not find a lot of background on this film the one thing i could see is that the studio were not fans of this again surprise surprise because they couldn't grasp the intent or structure well i can kind of see that there we get to a point where this film was pushed out so quickly that you can really start to see the cracks showing what we get are characters all over the place we get less of a one true lead or a couple of true leads and more jumping around with an ensemble cast we're introduced to a character and we get to learn about them for about five minutes and then we jump to another character and we learn about them for another five to ten minutes then we jump to another character and jump to another scene and set piece and that's how this film goes i'm assuming that had to do with the short amount of time that they had to put together a script and they had to put together a story and a background that's not to say I dislike The Leopard Man, and we'll get into that obviously when we finish. I still think it's a pretty good film, but you can definitely tell where the stress is starting to get on everyone. So what do we have here? Here we go again in this situation. The studio's like, well, cats worked the first time. Why not try it again? We're going to go back to cats. We're going to give you The Leopard Man. You can tell these titles aren't exactly inspired as they go through. I mean, they're cool and they're definitely memorable, but how would you feel to get these titles and have to come up with an entire premise around them? It's a little bit easier with I Walked with a Zombie because they had a basic idea of what they were going for. But Cat People and the Leopard Man, they're starting from scratch and just grasping at straws for what they're going to make this movie about. Let's go ahead and set up the synopsis for this from Letterboxd. Woman Alone, the Victims of Strange Savage Killer. When a leopard escapes during a publicity stunt, it triggers a series of murders. That's pretty short and to the point, but that's essentially what's going on. We have this character, Kiki, who is a singer and entertainer doing this stunt where she's bringing out a leopard that her manager thought of and thought would give her more attention, and the leopard escapes. What follows are a string of murders. That's about as deep as this plot gets, and we'll get a little more into that. This again was directed by Jacques Turner, so he's returning to his role there. But again, here we have a few areas I want to touch on and how this film what this film excelled at. You kind of have to put yourself back in the time period to think about a lot of these Val Luton films. I think they hold up and stand the test of time, but I know there are a lot of people out there who 
just can't get behind it. They can't see what's so great about it. There's been so many other things that have come after that that have upped the ante. But we have a pretty intense opening here. We get through the first, introducing the first couple sets of characters, and we get to this scene with this girl, Teresa Delgado. She's there with her mom and her brother, and she's told to go out for some cornmeal. So she's going to have to go to the store, and she protests, and she fights back with her mother. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Please don't make me go. And what we get from that is one of the most memorable Val Luton scenes I think he's ever created. To make matters worse, her brother is there, and he's doing shadow puppets on the door, which is really funny because we talked about Val Luton and loving to put all these shadows in there, and now he's doing a straightforward shadow puppet, and it's of this animal, and he's trying to scare his sister. She's tasked with going out in this New Mexico town and going to get some cornmeal. She goes to the first place, and they're closed, and they won't sell her any cornmeal, so she's going to have to go all the way across town. She's moving through this town. There's all these shadows, and there's all these little shops that she's going through. She gets under this train bridge, and we get our first encounter with the Luton bus in this film, which is just a small one. It doesn't make you jump that much. As she's going under this dark bridge, we see this tumbleweed come out, and that kind of startles her a little bit. Well, she gets there and gets the cornmeal and is returning. Again, it's dark and it's at night and it's a really tense scene. And she gets to this bridge and we're hearing this water dropping. We get this loud crash and here's the true Luton bus of the film. This loud crash and there's this train that goes overhead on the bridge. This really startles her and it startles you as a viewer. But then it's followed directly after that with this leopard, which pretty much resembles a panther. I'm not going to say it's a panther, but it looks like a panther to me. For the sake of the film, the leopard jumps out and really scares Teresa, and she starts running back towards home as fast as she can. And she gets there, and she's screaming, and she's yelling and pounding on the door for her mom to let her in. And her mom had locked and barred the door earlier. So she's over there, and she's saying, let me in, let me in. And they hear these noises out there, and the mom's rushing to get the door open, and she can't get the thing. The brother's coming over and trying to get the barricade over, trying to force the barricade off. We just see hear this loud pounding coming from the other side of the door, and then we see blood seep underneath the door much to the shock and dismay of the mother and the brother. It's just a really tense and brutal scene. I mean, there's this young girl just being mauled on the other side of this door, and the blood just seeps through underneath it. It's something that's stuck with me forever. It's just a great scene and memorable. The brutality of that at the time, I think, is pretty notable. I don't think we're seeing a lot of this brutality and viciousness, especially this early into a film. We're about 10 minutes in, and we're already getting the tension here as compared to I Walked With a Zombie and Cat People, where we're just doing a lot of character building for the vast majority of the first couple thirds of these films. Then we finally get the payoff later on. That's not happening here. It's giving you the terror straight from the beginning. And that sets off the whole course of events. This leopard has escaped. It's killed a girl. They're pretty sure it's the leopard that's killed a girl. And they start this manhunt. What ensues here is one of the first accurate portrayals of a serial killer on the screen. Spoiler for the end of this film, we start to get these clues and these little hints that are dropped that maybe this isn't the leopard that's causing these killings. What I mentioned earlier is we're getting introduced to these characters. So we'll get introduced to a character and then they'll get killed off. That's really kind of slasher-esque, or I wouldn't necessarily put it in the terms of a slasher, but we're seeing these things early on. 
everyone likes to talk about, you know, Psycho and Peeping Tom and all these things. Well, we get traces, very faint traces of a serial killer and a slasher type, very, very, very early slasher type stuff here. So let's go down and run through this serial killer plot, which is really pretty cool for the time. We get Consuela, who is a girl who's waking up and it's her birthday, and she has this plan to go out and meet her boyfriend in the cemetery. So she's there at the cemetery, and we get this really cool setup where there's this hedge maze. She's going through it, and we get the moonlight shining down, and it's a very cool scene. And she's waiting there, but the caretaker for the cemetery told her, hey, make sure you're out of here by this time, or you're going to get locked in. Well, he gives his warning at that time, and he gives a second warning. She doesn't make it in time, so she's locked in the cemetery. And we get these kills. All the kills here are off screen. They're not showing anything, of course. We get what could be assumed to be the leopard killing her. And we've got another kill by the leopard because we don't see it, and we're led to kind of believe that. Well, as we go on down through, there's some foreshadowing that goes on, and there's some little details that picked up to maybe make us think maybe this isn't the leopard doing this. And yeah, it's not the greatest mystery. It's not the biggest surprise or anything like that. But it is really cool. We get a foreshadowing comment by the leopard's owner who had loaned it out to this agent for this publicity stunt. He's saying that these cats, they're not going to hurt you. And this is a Amer Native American character, by the way, named Charlie. And he's saying the cats won't hurt you, but if they hear these loud sounds and they get these lights, they're going to be scared. Well, we had that scenario with the first one. They made it clear that we had that scenario with the train, with the bright lights and the sounds that it made, and that could frighten the cat and it could attack the girl. That's plausible. Well, Jerry, who is the agent in this situation, brings up the fact that, yeah, the train could have definitely provoked the cat in the first place, but there weren't any loud sounds, there weren't any bright lights in the cemetery to provoke the cat. So this starts to sow the seeds of doubt. We also get the cat's owner, Charlie, who suggests, I don't think the cat would stay in town. I think it would go towards the country and wander out that way. Well, they did this whole manhunt and did not find the cat. They're presuming the cat's at large, but he's thinking it would have went out into the country and they might never see it again. Our next character to bite it here would be Clo-Clo. Clo-Clo is a really cool character. She is a salsa dancer, and she kind of has this rivalry going on with Kiki, but she's this really fun character. There's this scene where this older gentleman is buying her, offering to buy her a drink, and she hides her beer as he comes close. She orders the champagne. It comes back. He said, are you sure you don't want another beer? Because he had obviously seen her hide the beer, and he thinks that's funny, and we get this great scene with Clo-Clo. We have this whole kind of prophecy with Clo-Clo from the beginning from this fortune teller where she's going to meet a rich man or meet a man with what'll cause her to have wealth but then she's going to die well we get this first part of the prophecy when the man who buys her a beer gives her some money and she's on the way home and she loses it and she goes back out and she tries to find it we get this very tense dark scene and it's a really cool tense scene another well shot scene here and we hear nothing but shuffling feet behind Clo-Clo and she's killed when she goes out and looks for this money. So those are our two characters who are offed here. We've got three murders so far. We know one is the leopard. We don't know about the other two. Instead of getting on a train and going out of town, we get Kiki and Jerry deciding that they want to stay and play detective. So we get that kind of classic noir style here, or noir light really in this case. Well, we get this other piece where Charlie finds the leopard and it was shot. So now 
we have this other character, and we'll get into his backstory a little bit when we're talking about a theme here a little later on, but his name's Galbraith, and he's this professor. And Jerry suggests that Galbraith had killed the leopard during the search. So now they're going to try and set up Galbraith. They're trying to out him because they think it's him that killed those people and not the leopard. Which I guess it doesn't matter at this point because the leopard's dead, but they're just trying to get that justice. We get this really cool scene back at his, I don't know if it's a lab or an office or a museum or whatever it was. It's at night and there's shadows. And we know that there's this procession going on and this parade that's remembering the Native Americans and how they had their land stolen. This is the scene that's going on outside and this is how they're going to try to set Galbraith up. We get this where they play Cloclo's Cassianettes because she's always going around playing them to kind of spook Galbraith a little bit, to freak him out and think that she's back from the dead or haunting him. We get the reveal, and it's really Kiki, and he tries to kill Kiki. They're there to stop him, and they chase him out of the building. He's in, gets into this procession that's going by. He just gets in the middle of it, and they go up, and they are on either side of him, and they're asking him questions and interrogating him during this procession, and it's a really great scene. One of my favorites in the film. Probably my second favorite behind Teresa's death, that whole scene. We know Galbraith's the killer, and his motive was he was driven insane after he killed the leopard on that hunt. And one thing I didn't mention earlier is they set up this fact that there were leopard, I think leopard hair and claws left at the scene at the cemetery, trying to set it up. And that was Galbraith, apparently. That's, That's his motive. He was trying to plant it on this leopard and make it seem like the leopard was doing it. In reality, he probably had access to this stuff because he had killed the leopard. There it is. Galbraith is a serial killer, essentially. I don't know if he quite reaches that level. He's clearly become unstable after having killed this leopard, and now he's killing these women. I think it's pretty progressive for the time to have this sort of thing in a film, especially this more nuanced character. He's not this over-the-top person either. So far, we've had a pretty good track record of these Jacques Turner, Val Luton films having a clear message and a clear undertone behind everything. It's harder to find it here since it is kind of bits and pieces. There's not as much of a story going on here, but I think what it comes down to is guilt. Most of the characters in this film that are featured have some kind of guilt. I would say Consuela and Teresa are probably the ones without it. That's neither here nor there. They're not that much of main characters. So let's set this up. We've got Clo-Clo, who feels guilty because at the beginning when Kiki and Jerry are parading this leopard out there, she plays her cassionettes out of kind of like a jealous rage almost right at the leopard and causes it to run off and starts the whole inciting action to this film. So she's definitely guilty about that, about causing the leopard to run off. Well, then we have Kiki and Jerry who are surely guilty for bringing the leopard there in the first place and causing all this to happen. And then we have Charlie, who again is the leopard's trainer, the leopard's owner, and he's meant to feel guilt mainly by Galbraith, who puts the idea in his head that, you know, he has access to this leopard stuff. He would have access to the claws and the fur. He got drunk the night the girl was killed in the cemetery, and he doesn't remember getting back into his truck. He knows he woke up in his truck, but he doesn't remember that, so he thinks that he's guilty at this point. And then we have Galbraith, who feels guilty for killing the leopard. So it's just this this communal guilt that is felt by all of the main characters in this movie. 
And we see here again with Charlie, we've got this underlying theme of some gaslighting going on. You know, he's the Native American character in this film, the major Native American character in this film. And Galbraith is kind of taking advantage of him and making him think that he is this thing that he's not. And we know he's cleared because he sleeps in a jail cell when Cloclo is murdered. He turns himself in, sleeps in this jail cell, and Cloclo is murdered, so he's off the hook. And then we have this great piece of redemption because Kiki and Jerry, Kiki especially, just acts very cold during this whole thing. When they go to Teresa's funeral, they're not really, she's not really showing emotion. She's not really feeling sympathy. She's saying, well, it's not our fault. It's not our fault. We find out later that's just a mask for all of this. Her and Jerry take flowers to Consuela's grave, and she admits to him that she wanted to feel so much guilt after being so cold and confessing she felt bad this whole time, and it turns out that they both gave a good portion of their money to these victims' families because they felt like they were responsible for their deaths. So we get that great little redemption arc buried in there. Unfortunately, that also leads to a kind of shoehorned romance that we get between the two. It's not bad. It's a nice piece to have in the film, but it's not necessary, and it was definitely thrown in there. Overall, I think The Leopard Man is a great film. I really enjoy it. I know it doesn't sit up there in that upper pantheon of Val Luton films for most people, and I know it's a little uneven, and we don't really get the deep storytelling that we're used to, but I would still give this one a highly recommend for myself. I think it's still worth watching for the really cool and progressive scenes we see in this, like the aforementioned Teresa death or the portrayal of a serial killer in this film, and there's a great scene still to be had here. That's going to do it for our two feature films tonight we're talking about from Val Luton. I do want to go through a couple of notes I had here at the end that tie both of these films, or all three films together, really. So far with all three of these films we've covered, we've gotten this sense of there's two explanations, right? There's the more fantastical, over-the-top explanation, and that's the one that's really overt within the film. There's this serial killer that's out killing these women is definitely the more fantastical when compared to a leopard is out there killing these women. And you've got Arena is turning into a cat and killing people, and that is definitely the more fantastic thing from cat people. Or you've got that there's this voodoo ritual and Jessica is a zombie and they're all controlled. And RKO made sure to make that at the forefront and put that front and center in these movies. When maybe Val Luton and Jacques Turner would have liked to leave it much more up to the imagination. And we we do have those sensible and more practical explanations too. It's just that the forced fantastical element has put those on the back burner and left those to your mind. Another thing is all of these films end on sadder notes. You know, we've had people die. We've had bad things happen. But we also end up with people in love who wouldn't have been if not for the events of this story. Now, you could argue with what would happen with Oliver and Alice in the first film we covered of the cat people. But I really don't know if they would have ever gotten together if it wasn't for the events that transpired there. Maybe they would have. But in I Walked with a Zombie... Betsy and Paul would have never gotten together, and we assume, we're led to believe, that that's probably what's going to happen with both Wesley and Jessica out of the picture, that Paul and Betsy are probably going to be together, because they do have that love for each other that grew due to the events of the film. And we have the same thing with the Leopard Man, is Kiki and Jerry 
they play the roles of the talent and the agent. But it really seems like the events of the film push them to be together. So we have that little ray of hope there in these otherwise dark films. In both movies we mentioned tonight, there are characters who are said to be afraid of the dark. Paul says of Betsy and I Walked with the Zombie that she's afraid of the dark. And then we get the shop owner saying to Teresa that she was always afraid of the dark. And that's very interesting that we have that mentioned twice in these films that were put out pretty close together. I don't know if it's supposed to be a running theme or if it's just a coincidence due to the rushed writing of these films or what. I just noticed that. And then at this point, we have three very different cultural settings. And then we have also, within those cultural settings, three different foreign backgrounds to what Americans would see at the time. In Cat People, we are setting in New York City, right in the heart of New York City, and we've got this fable about these cat people back in a village in Eastern Europe where Arena is from. And then in I Walked with a Zombie, we have this kind of Haitian setting, this Caribbean setting with these former West African slaves which had bought their voodoo practices over, and we get an in-depth look into that. Finally, we're in this New Mexico setting where we do get a little bit of Native American and and these Latin American natives where we get a piece of their backstory too. Not as much in The Leopard Man, but again, they didn't have as much time to put that together and they didn't have as much material backing it up. I think that's really cool, especially at the time, because at the time, I don't think many studios were going to let you make that the forefront of your film. They weren't going to let you do a film that had the main characters be the voodoo practitioners on this Caribbean island. I don't see that happening, but we still get to, even with the restrictions, Val Luton is still introducing us to these different cultures, these different cultural ideas, and it's really cool to get something different back then. I don't know, maybe I'm just grasping at straws here, but I just think that's a through line through all three of these films, the two of them have put together, and I really enjoyed that. We also get, and I've talked about this over and over, that everything is well-researched. There's all these little facts and details, and everything we see, we get the comment that the Leopard Man is a very accurate portrayal of a serial killer, what a serial killer would come to be. We get that I Walked the Zombie would have very accurate portrayals of the voodoo rituals and ceremonies. It's very impressive just the amount of sheer research and detail they put into these films. It's one of the things I really love about Val Luton films. You know they're not going to spare any expense. They're not going to take the easy way out when they can. Now again we get here where the deadlines push up against them and they've got to get something out and they're working until maybe midnight. We have these stories of you would drive by Val's house at midnight and you'd still see the light on his office because he's rushing to get these films out. That's going to do it for our talk on I Walked with a Zombie and The Leopard Man in this part of Val Luton's career. Again, we don't have a whole lot of backstory going out because it's just bam, 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 one film after another is coming out at this point in his career. Your homework for next time, we're going to be talking about three films on the next episode. The Seventh Victim, The Ghost Ship, and The Curse of the Cat People. I want to talk about that portion so we can get those out of the way, the rest of these films that were filmed back to back to back so we can get into a little more background of stuff going on in the episodes after that in the meantime while you wait for the next episode you can follow the podcast on twitter at screaming ages 
send us an email at screamingthroughtheages at yahoo.com or visit the website at screamingthroughtheages.com where we host all of the episodes. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in the podcast services of your choice. Let me know if you're enjoying the show, if there's things you'd rather see the show focus on or you see changes. And please, if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends. I'd appreciate it if you could spread this around if you are enjoying yourself to other people you think would enjoy it. With that being said, we'll see you next time for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.